and welcome to Date Night at the Movies. Or How I Spent My Babysitter Money. I'm Jess. I'm Jordan. And this week we are talking 1917, a movie that makes you go, oh my god, that was an amazing, with a title that makes you go, what? Why? <laughs> yeah. I don't, after seeing this movie, I was like, I feel like, I mean, granted, distributors pick names for films. Yeah. Um, but I was like, huh. I genuinely think that the original title of this script was probably like April 8th, 1917. My problem with it being called 1917 is that it's not about the year 1917. The story itself is about this one incident that takes place in a larger thing that really defined the year. But like, it would be different like if you called a World War II movie 1944 and it was about D-Day. Because like that's something that it, like if you think 1944, a lot of a lot of people immediately think D-Day. Whenever you think 1917, you don't immediately think uh, this particular moment in World War One. So, uh, which so this movie, like Jordan said, is set on April 6, uh, 1917. Another major event that happened April 6, 1917, is an explosion in Chester, Pennsylvania. Oh, I'm assuming it was like a mining explosion. I don't know. Um, but like, as far as, um, I mean, I mean, 19, well, what's confusing to me, so 1917 was the year that the United States entered the World War One. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like this wasn't the best title. Yeah. Because, I mean, that was a pretty hefty year. I mean, Germany was winning yeah. at this point. Maybe that's... I mean, here, here's the thing. We're we immediately starting off going pretty hard on this title, but spoiler alert, that is really the only criticism I have about this movie. Agreed. Uh, I cannot believe how good this movie was. I agree. Um, let should we? Well, first let's do some housekeeping. Housekeeping. Um, we do have a dog at the podcast. Mm-hmm. We do have Madison. Madison. Here. And I told her she couldn't sit in my lap this morning. So now she's laying down on the carpet looking the other way from us, like giving us the cold shoulder. Mm-hmm. Even though she's looking at her bed down here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's she- a dog bed down here. I would like to remind everyone <laughs> that there is a dog bed down here. And it's one of her favorite dog beds that she also thought was a toy. Um, it's this dog bed that she would drag around the house and you know put her bed wherever she wanted to. Um, and it's pretty big. And now she's got a tiny bed, which we didn't mean to buy her a tiny bed, but she loves her tiny bed. Yeah, we almost took the tiny bed away until she like we saw her constantly go over there and smush herself into it. It's like, okay, you know what? Charlie's <laughs> technically too big for his bed, too. So. I know. But no, we have the, the Madison dog bed down here because I, we took that bed away just in case she didn't like her new one. And I put it down here because I didn't want to put it in the garage where it might get all dusty and everything in case we needed to use it. And then it just kind of stayed here and she found it and that's where she is now. Oh, no. If you can hear that, Madison loves going to rugs and clawing at them, essentially. like She scratches them to make a bed. So <clears throat> she's making a bed in, the, in, in a tiny corner. We're watching you. Uh, there's all these music stands up right now and she's... Again, there's a dog bed. There's a bed for her. Um, we do, when we lived in Los Angeles, we didn't tend to have a lot of rugs because one, we moved quite a bit. I think yeah. the longest we were in a place was three years. Something like that. I mean, in the eight years that Los Angeles was our primary home, we had four different residences. Yeah. 
So we didn't stay in all of them for two years. I think the the least amount of time we stayed in one was about six months. Yeah, but we lived in the two North Hollywood places both for over two years. Yeah. Um, but in other words, oh, and speaking of L.A., uh, happy New Year. Happy 2020. It's our first time sitting down at the mics. Well, technically not my first time, because I did Uncut Gems last week. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and well, we, released, I'm back. we released Knives Out last week, but uh, but it was very out of order. Um, yeah. So like Which we, was a great <clears throat> movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually... I, th- I think we're going to talk more about like the Academy Award nominations when we do our 2019 in review, but I'm going to say, spoiler alert, I am so glad to see that Ryan Johnson got a nomination for Best Original Screenplay, because I think he truly deserved it. I think that movie should have also gotten nominated for a lot more. Uh, I would have loved to see Ana de Armas, uh, Daniel Craig. I wish I could have seen the Nathan Johnson's score get nominated. But I also thought it was a very strongly directed movie. Yeah, I also Johnson. think it's not it's not an Oscar bait movie. It was also I saw I think I was it a tweet or I don't know what it was, but someone was like, I just want to see a series of movies where it's knives out esque, mm-hmm. but it's just Daniel Craig doing ridiculous, nonsensical like that accent that he was doing. Yeah. I don't know what it was, but it was consistent. <laughs> it was his choice. It was a choice. <laughs> it was wonderful. And I just want to see like different variations on that character. Not the same accent, but all the same rules. It has mm-hmm. to be kind of outlandish. It needs to be perfect. And it has to be grounded and solving mysteries in all these different places. I want to see this. I, I would like to see this. What movies. I <laughs> love the possibility that we're going towards now is, so, you know, Kenneth Branagh is doing more uh, Hercule Poirot movies, mm-hmm. the Agatha Christie ones, because he did Murder on the Orient Express. I can't remember what the next one is, but it's another adaptation. But, like, where we have these competing, like, mur- like whodunit murder mystery movies, one with Kenneth Branagh taking it super seriously, and Ryan Johnson just being like, no, what's the most fun movie I can possibly make yeah. out of this? So it wasn't good Oscar bait. But I, I guess that's the thing. To me, I guess I feel about it like I did I, Tonya, which, you know, didn't get a whole lot of Oscar love, which except for Alice I, and Jamie. Which was so good. Yeah. But I'm glad to see it got what it got, because it kind of subverts the establishment. I mean, I could go... There's a lot wrong with the Oscar nominations this year, but I'm going to save that for when we do our 2019 interview. Yeah. And I didn't watch the Golden Globes. I actually, like, knew they were on. Uh-huh. It, for me, like, when I miss the Tonys... I'm always like, oh, I miss the Tonys. It's also a really great show. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity for those of us who don't get to go to New York all the time or even see what comes to town. Um, it gives you an idea of what's on Broadway right now. Mm-hmm. And it's such a joy. The Tonys are such a joy. And I'm, I always am like, oh, I'm, I'm sad I missed that. Golden Glows were on. Yeah. And I well, just didn't watch it. Amy Nicholson gave a great... Uh, explanation of the Golden Globes and she's like it's it baffles me why people take them seriously it's historically a group of star f***ers who really wanted to be on TV and created their award show and now it's a thing essentially it's like if we started taking the Razzies seriously right which I do and <laughs> also, I just want to go to the Golden Globes so I can sit at a table and drink champagne. Yeah. So did you hear, uh, I think it was Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon ran out of champagne and they saw that Beyonce and Jay-Z brought their own in. So they they uh, bummed a glass of champagne off of them. Be like, yo, yo, yo. And then Beyonce apparently sent uh, Reese Witherspoon a case of champagne afterwards. That's amazing. Yeah. Gross for next year. Mm-hmm. Save it. Yeah. Save it. No, I'd probably... 
I would probably, I would be in the comfiest dress that I could be in. Mm-hmm. I would sit wherever the crap I'm supposed to sit, and mama might have a mug. Yeah. <laughs> no shame. No my, shame. I think my favorite Golden Globes moment ever is uh, they cut to Amy Poehler after like a joke was said about her, or maybe she was up for a nomination or something, and she had an eye patch, and she lifted up her eye patch and winked with her other eye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, that's a lot of concentration for just a little moment, and I appreciated the commitment. Um, also, like the Golden Globes, because, you know, what's so great about uh, the interwebs is it's so easy to get, like, a glimpse of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Joaquin Phoenix could get on stage and make this, quote, poignant speech, quote, the quotes are important, mm-hmm. um, uh, speaking of Razzies, razzed. Yeah. <laughs> Completely drunk off his ass. And everyone was like, he made some really good points. Uh, I, and a woman couldn't have done that. No. I am actually really upset that, because we both said, even though we did not like Joker, that Joaquin Phoenix was amazing in it. Yeah. And I hate the fact that like Joaquin Phoenix has now kind of got swept up in the whole Joker thing. Like to me, I because I didn't like the movie, my thoughts on his performance tend to get colored on that, even though I know that's objectively not how I feel. But now everything is like, you know, oh, you think it's so poignant because it's Joker. And it's like we're not actually celebrating his we're not actually celebrating his performance. You're celebrating the fact that you all got tricked into seeing a remake. One of my favorite yeah. tweets, I cannot remember who said it, was they said, maybe Uncut Gems would have gotten more Academy Award love if it was called The Riddler. <laughs> I, I remember laughing out loud at home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like, I just, uh, oh, and then Michelle Williams dug her own grave. Yeah, and then I hear people be like, it was so brilliant. And I was like, no, that was just like literal white feminism. That was, no, that was straight up white privilege talking. Yeah. White, it stunk. It stunk of privilege. Anyway, moral of the story is we've got a lot of reviewing of the decade and 2019 and... Mm -hmm. We're going to have two episodes coming up, one for the decade, which I've got to just make a list of like 500 movies and see if Jessica remembers seeing any of them before she can Mm. make her picks. TBD, everyone. Um, TBD. And the other night she was like, you know what you should do? You should just make a list for me. I'm like, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, I could go through and see what the crap I remembered. Yeah, I mean, I I imagine that you could probably go through our collection, but even then... No, you know what? Send me a link. Send me a link that's like, hey, this this website has a pretty good idea. Bless you. Oh. Almost got in our dog bed. Yeah. Um, Half of our dog bodies in our dog bed. Um, Send me, like, go somewhere and see... Hey, this has a pretty good rundown of the decades movies, mm-hmm. and and send me a link. Yeah, I can write them down, and then send me one with 2019. Just help me out. Yeah, just find I, the best website you can. Send me a link. I'm going to well because I have a lot of. Uh, sound design and mixing work to do in the next couple of days. And while I'm waiting on things to render, that's what I'm going to be working on. Rendering. It's still <laughs> rendering. But maybe we should... Uh, well, let's go on with more housekeeping. Um, uh, any any uh, on this day in film history? Housekeeping, are you decent? 
What kind can we of make hotel li- is this? Can we make a little sound bite? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime we say a housekeeping, can we make a sound bite that that you blurp in? What kind of I I really want to like I really want to take a page from like shot jocks and just have like a pad controller with different clips uh with different clips attached to it. And so that way as we're doing things, I can just press them as I get uh as I get inspired. Yeah. So I might I might do that one. But day. I I think uh housekeeping are you decent? And what was the next line? <laughs> uh well we I don't think we can say the full line that, that leads to what kind of hotel is this? <laughs> okay, so edit it. Yeah, but Tommy Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Is that been in the past decade? I liked that movie. <laughs> Tommy Boy is 25 years old now. No, it is. Yeah. I know it is because we aren't 25 and we have been quoting that movie since we have been old enough to think that movie was really funny. And I will say, I realize that Tommy Boy is what it is, but I will rewatch that movie almost anytime. It's so good. Now, Black Richard. Sheep is a garbage movie. Black Sheep is a garbage but movie. But Tommy Boy is amazing now when i was a kid uh i was homeschooled for a year and i lived we lived in the middle of nowhere we lived like on 15 acres and my dad you know i've said before he was a gospel musician and they don't go on tours they just work every weekend which kind of bleeds into the week and my mom was uh apparently my sister's high school band program was terrible so she and the other parents were banding together to try and make it work you made a pun (laughs) yeah i did um so I was just by myself. So I'd finish my schoolwork and it's like, well, none of my friends are here. This is really boring. What do I do? And we had Dish Satellite Network, which had oh. the East Coast and the West Coast feed. So between those two, I once watched Tommy Boy four times in a row oh on my. HBO. I once, so I used to do Relay for Life's for American Cancer Society. Mm-hmm. And I made team t-shirts and I was by myself. I don't know where my parents were. I was in... High school, because I could, would have had needed to drive. So I was in high school. Mm-hmm. My Relay for Life team, I was making homemade t-shirts for everybody, like the iron-ons. Mm-hmm. And I, my parents were like, you can buy something on pay-per-view. Remember DirecTV? Yeah. Like that, like, and I bought AI. Mm-hmm. Artificial Intelligence. That's a hard movie. Yo. So I'm like 16, maybe 17, making t-shirts all night for the American Cancer Society so we can do our Relay for Life. And I was the team captain and um, and like probably doing other things because that, like I was like, for a few years, that was something that like I really did and I made sure everybody had like a really good time. And I bought AI, which is a real movie. Mm-hmm. I watched it from like, I watched it until sunrise. Jeez. I have never seen that movie again. <laughs> you know, so AI is one of those movies that I never fail to tear up in at the end of it. And I realize that that's me getting suckered in by the movie because the movie is actually making this really subversive point at the end of it that feels really sugary and fairy tale-y. Yeah. Uh, it's making a point on how we uh, on how we project ourselves onto inanimate objects. And I'm just like, yep, I'm that person. <laughs> I mean, you've seen... you. On this podcast alone, you hear how we talk to dogs. Yeah. No, there's a video game that came out uh, a few years after AI. It was called Dreamfall. It was a sequel to an adventure game called The Longest uh, The Longest Journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, you're the main character. Adventure game or Avenger game? Adventure game. Okay. Um, the main character has like 
it's essentially a gorilla toy that has like its own version of AI in it. And they got the guy who voiced the teddy bear and AI to do it, Jack Angel. And like there are times where he's like, you know, would you like to play a game, Zoe? We haven't played in so long. I miss playing games with you. It's like, you have to stop this now. It got too, it just got too much for me. That's weird. Yeah. Going back to housekeeping, uh, Flash from the Past, everyone, uh, we have a drink of the podcast. Yes, we do. It's coffee. It's coffee with half and half. Yeah, it's pretty mm-hmm. our standard drink. Uh, we are in the market for a new coffee maker. Um, I probably spent over an hour yesterday Googling, uh, and, mm-hmm. well, really Amazoning. Yeah. Coffee makers. We found one that we really liked, and then we found that all the bad reviews had one consistent thing about it. We're like, I don't know if I want to deal with that. Yeah. So we're heartbroken. And it has no warmer. Yeah. What? How? Who drinks an entire pot of coffee in like 30 minutes? No one. Yeah. No one. Yeah. Which we don't even make a whole pot of coffee. Anyway, we digress. All right. On this day in film history... 1962. Oh, today, we are recording this Mm -hmm. on January 16th. Right. So, you will listen to this in the future. Um, But sometimes we don't know when these episodes are going to come out. This one will come out... It's supposed to go out today, but I'll probably put it out tomorrow. Woo! So, today, in film history, recording this is January 16th, 2020. In 1962, shooting begins on Dr. No, the first James Bond film. Somehow, when you said 1962, I thought it was going to be Dr. No. I I just had this image of Sean Connery in a hairpiece. Sean Connery. Quick, boys, get on my back. (laughs) And today is someone's birthday. Who? John Carpenter. Really? How old is he? Can you guess? Uh, He is 73. So close. 72. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. John Carpenter, who is secretly one of the most influential filmmakers of the modern era. Yeah. Like, there that's a guy who should have already, if nothing else, gotten like like an Irving Thalberg Academy Award at this point. It's never gonna happen. No, but like if you especially if you look at something like Uncut Gems, the soundtrack. Or you look at just like how many other filmmakers use lighting. And of course, a lot of that is because Dean Cundey is brilliant. He was the cinematographer on like Halloween and The Thing and things like that. But how people use lighting, uh, the way that they put together like ambiguous stories. Also, the way that he makes movies that even if they don't seem, even if they seem kind of lame when they're first released, how they have the staying power and how he's always thinking about, well, how is this going to be relevant later on? You know, 90s electric guitar soundtracks notwithstanding. Right. Um, but, like, he is secretly probably the most influential filmmaker that came out of the 70s. And it's a shame that he doesn't get that credit where it's due. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, also, I want to give a quick shout out. This is... Um, Someone new I have been following on the gram, um, but also a fellow podcast host. And so I really just wanted to give a shout out to Mike Petchy. Um, you can follow him at Mike Petchy on the gram, M-I-K-E-P-E-C-C-I. And he runs, um, so we connected. And one thing, what I really dig about his podcast, it's, it's geared towards indie filmmakers. He doesn't do reviews, but the idea is 
Mike is taking a look at how we make movies and the process of, of it in and of itself. So if you really like the interviews that Jordan and I do, or you really like to geek out with us when we talk about things, and this is definitely going to be a podcast where we do some geeking out, um, I would totally um, check this out. And you can uh, follow the podcast at inlovewiththeprocess.com. So inlovewiththeprocess.com, the podcast is In Love With The Process. Um and, um, yeah, I just have really enjoyed his Instagram. There's what, one of the things that caught my mind is talking about different links of camera lenses and how just like in one image, how it changes, how we view something very, very simply. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like, Oh, nice. So anyway, um, I can't recommend him enough. Um, he is sponsored by Puget systems and check out the podcast. Well, awesome. Yeah, and keep an eye out for, I mean, we're going to, I know our social media game still hasn't gotten back to where it was this time last year, but we're going to be upping that. Jessica's also working on a lot of stuff. Uh, You know, I'll let her share that when she's ready, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing some more stuff, kind of giving you an insight to my process in the studio and just what it's like to be in my studio and have to get work done sometimes. Uh, You know, just... Just things like that. So keep an eye out for all the random stuff we're going to be doing in this next year. Agreed. Yeah. So let's dive into 1917. How do we want to rate this? Um, I want to say in bread. Okay, I was going to say doughboy helmets. Doughboy helmets? Yeah, that's what they called the helmets with like the wide brims uh, that they had in World I don't War One. I knew that. Yeah, yeah, doughboys. That's what they used to call the soldiers. I don't think I knew that. But let's do uh, let's do bread. How many low or how many pieces of bread? Yeah. How how many torn off pieces of bread? Um, gosh. I'm I'm gonna swing for the fences here. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna give it a five. I'm gonna give it a five too. What? This movie was great. I I have a low tolerance for war movies, and I cannot wait to see this movie again. It I couldn't believe how good this movie this was. This movie had a strong thesis other than war. Yeah. <laughs> and Jordan and I have already talked about this because we just like couldn't help ourselves, but movies about war and war is awful. Mm-hmm. War is awful. Yeah. War is awful. But we in, should know that by now. Yeah. But Saving Private Ryan changed the game as far as war films went, but everybody learned the wrong lessons from it. Yeah. This movie in Dunkirk did not. And Correct. I think I said it in the car yesterday. I think this is a fantastic companion piece to Dunkirk. Um and it is not the same movie. No, no, not at all. You you think it's going to be? I went into it thinking that oh, this is just Sam Mendes a uh, rip on Dun- riff on Dunkirk. And it so was not. Mm-mm. I was in th- It really makes me want to watch Dunkirk again. It, it me too. I just didn't want to recommend it last night because I thought I was the only one. It was too many last night. But um but no, I I was I was enthralled the whole time. Yeah, I I didn't want to check my phone. Um, I didn't start thinking about other things. I didn't get you know me. I get antsy with my hands if I don't do things with them for a while. So like that's either like I said the other night, you went to bed before I did, and I was like, I'm playing video games because I'm antsy with my hands. And it's either video games or music. Uh, I didn't feel that during this movie, which war movies tend to make me feel. Uh, I thought. Like, I could just go through and list all the things I like about it, but I'm just going to be listing the whole movie. Um, 
what I will say in terms of like me not saying I love the score, I love the cinematography, is that I love that this movie. It was brutal in places. The first time they go down into in the trench. places? Well, like, I'm talking about, like, things that I've never seen in a war movie before, brutal. Oh, okay. Because this movie, the whole, here's one thing I will say. The whole movie mm-hmm. is brutal. But the movie's not gory. No, it's not gory. And it doesn't revel in being brutal and dark. No. Yeah, like, like it keep it just keeps going. It doesn't shy away from, you know, what we will paint in the corner of the horrors of war but it doesn't revel in that it trusts that you're that you get that just from watching the movie agreed one thing that i think this uh, movie is an absolute triumph of is i've already said it but sam mendes had it was clear to me Mm -hmm. it was clear to me that this director had a very clear thesis Mm -hmm. um and when you want when you get to the end of the movie this the dedication um which will we won't spoil. Um, but there's a dedication to this movie. So clearly Sam Mendes grew up with a lot of these, a lot mm-hmm. of war stories. Well, we can talk about that because he's mentioned that in the press tour. Oh, has he? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we, we can touch on it. Yeah, we can touch on it. But yeah. anyway, so there's a dedication. So obviously this director has spent a lot of time hearing these stories. Mm-hmm. This was a very, I can tell this was a very personal movie for him. Yeah. And honestly, thinking about it, I don't know if I've ever seen Sam Mendes do a personal movie. I mean, there are a couple of his that I, maybe, I think there's like one of his that I haven't seen. I haven't seen Away We Go, uh, which is John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph about to have a baby and traveling the country to find a place where they want to live and raise it. Uh, it's a, it's very much like a late 2000s indie movie type of thing. Yeah. Uh, bless you. Um, so, so real quick, I want to get back to my point. Oh, I'm sorry. So... This had a clear thesis. And then the other thing that was abundantly clear to me, and if it didn't go down this way, obviously, we didn't work on this movie, so we don't know. But I thought all the departments shown. This was one of the first movies in a long time that the IATSE crew Mm -hmm. was long. Like, really long. Not CGI personnel long, but long. I thought set deck. That was it shown mm-hmm. and what they what they were able to build and bring forward in their storytelling, t- the greens, the construction, everything was saturated in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Roger Deakins, who is the DP for this movie, was also a cam op. Yeah. Like this movie and this movie, like it, sh- it was so clear that, oh, we've got Roger Deakins behind the wheel on, of camera here. Mm-hmm. Well, then. This is how we need to shoot it. I mean, it was on this. On, I mean, for all I could tell, and I, you know, I'm not a, a camera operator. It was on the same lens. I think the, so. Yeah. Like the entire time, and like that's there's a reason different lenses are available, mm-hmm. right? It helps us do the work, and it just was very clear to me that all of the departments, and if you've ever been on a movie set, you'll, or if you ever have the privilege to be. There's a lot of people on set mm-hmm. and every single one of those people has a job. Yeah. And even when you see someone standing around for a couple minutes, they're not standing around. They're busy. Yeah. They just have a moment. And there's a lot of that every department really just shown. I mean, gosh, the I was just watching wardrobe. And if you watch the evolution of the wardrobe throughout this movie, I'm like, mm-hmm. I can't fathom the reset. Yeah. At the end of the day. I don't know how. And 
several times Jordan and I just looked at each other and we were just went, how did they do this? Yeah. And I feel like it was such a triumph in filmmaking that, that it was the story we were focused on the people and the relationships that were set in this time. And I feel like, like I haven't seen a movie in a while that wasn't masked in CGI, wasn't masked in matrix style stunts, Mm -hmm. uh, which we all, we all should know that I dig it, but that's not why I got into movies. And while I would like the stunt team to always shine, I do want that. Mm-hmm. They really shone in this. Like every department got a shining, like shining moments. Well, there, there wasn't a weak part about this film. There was one VFX shot that I did not like. Can you yeah, share it? Yeah, because I mean, the whole the whole movie is essentially getting from point A to point B. That's true. So I can talk about specific moments without without mentioning specific plot points. It's when he jumped off the bridge. Oh, into the water. Yeah. That one, Why didn't you like it? Because it, stu- it didn't bother me at all. It stuck out to me as this is the CGI moment in this movie where if any use of CGI was used sparingly. And I understand why they had to do that, but like it looked a little fake. He wasn't falling with the what gravity would actually be doing. Uh, it didn't stick out to me it, at all. That was a sore thumb moment in this movie. But the rest of the movie is so good that I was like, okay, that's just what happened. Yeah. I'm also curious too, because this movie isn't so insanely practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if they got there on the, on the day that uh-huh. they had to shoot that yeah. and it was too dangerous. I, I mean, that's why I imagine it looked like that. And I'm also curious if there was wire work involved. It could have been. Cause wire work to CGI and it, sometimes that wire drop mm-hmm. doesn't, um, like you, you can't get the descent right. Like you can't get yeah. the flow of gravity quite right. So, so that's kind. Of, that was the only part that to me that stuck out. Everything else, I a thousand percent agree with you. Every department in this movie uh, had a chance to shine. Um, I mean, I'll get into the score here in a little bit because I have so many thoughts on the score. Yeah, it's also interesting. So I'm just looking at some of Sam Mendes' work. Um, so in case you're like, who are you talking about? Uh, he did the kite runner, away we go, jarhead, road to perdition. So he didn't do kite runner. I think he was a producer on kite runner. Okay. Spectre. Yeah, he did. So he did American beauty. Uh huh. That was his first movie that he won an Oscar for. Yeah. Uh, but now Sam Mendes is like, he was knighted in Britain, but mostly for his contribution to theater. He is a major theater director. Uh, he revived Shrek the musical. He did Shrek the musical. <laughs> he he revived Oliver Twist or Oliver, I guess. Yeah, Oliver. Um, he did so like he's done. He does a lot of stagings like Chekhov plays and things like that. He's a major theater director. But his first movie was American Beauty, won an Oscar for it. Then he did Road to Perdition. Then he did Jarhead. Uh, then he did Revolutionary Road. That's a rough movie. Yeah. Then uh, Away We Go. Then Skyfall Inspector. Yeah, and after Spectre, Spectre is my one of my least favorites in the James in the Daniel Craig James Bond movies. I like it. I like it. I like it better now than I did when we first saw it. Oh, he did Company. Yeah, yeah. He he actually did Company, where it was the first African American lead. I love mm-hmm. love yeah that musical. If you've never listened to Company, y'all, or there's actually opportunities to see it on like at home and you. On mm-hmm. your television, yeah, I think Netflix has a version of it. Oh, I don't know which one they have, but uh, they, have the, they have the Raul Esparza one. <gasps> oh, 
Oh, oh. I'm pretty sure. Oh. Okay, that has Elaine Stritch in it. I think so, yeah. Ah, it's so good. Um, Here's to the ladies who lunch. Aren't but, they allowed? But oh, yeah, so, so Sam, Sam Mendes is an amazing, amazing storyteller, filmmaker, uh, everything. But I don't think I've seen him do a personal movie before and just the stuff that I've listed off. Like, that's not to say that he doesn't inject himself into his movies. Right. And that's not to say that, like, those aren't the movies that he wanted to make. But... Most th- this is the first time he has an official screenwriting credit on a movie. Oh. Um, so most of the time he's taking other people's stories and then he's turning them into just amazing movies. Now I'm not a fan of all of them. Like I said, I don't think Skyfall or Spectre was the, one of the strongest ones he'd ever done. Um, I don't really care about seeing Revolutionary Road again. Uh, no, I had a hard time with that yeah. movie. Jar Jarhead is Jarhead has staying power, but it's not my favorite one that he's done. Uh, American Beauty used to be my favorite movie, and now I can't really watch it because of Kevin Spacey. And, like, it's not one of those things where it's like, you know, oh, I'm just refusing not to watch it. But it's like, no, Kevin Spacey's character in that movie just takes on a whole new light now, you know? Yeah. Um, But Road to Perdition is an amazing movie. So he makes fantastic movies, but this is the first time where I feel like this is one that he told from his heart, and I think it really shows. Yeah, I I agree. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt personal, but... I feel like there's there's this pitfall with personal movies mm-hmm. is we have to tell all of it. Oh, I can't miss a detail. I mm-hmm. can't. And this is something that, you know, writing blog posts, like you just want to like talk on and on and on. Yeah. And again, you've got to know what the crap you t- want. Why am I telling this story right now today? Mm-hmm. And it was very clear what this story right now today, who that character was. Mm-hmm. And why they needed to get to point A to point B. Mm. And it, yes, you could say just orders. Yes, you could say, yes, I want to come home. Um, but it was just like, no, you like you, this director knew what story they wanted to tell. Yeah. And it was, it was so clear. It was so clear. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, and it, and like you could watch this so many times and probably be like, oh, I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to think. And one of my favorite things to do is to watch a really good movie and then try to make the other, another character, the star. Mm-hmm. I try like in my brain, I switch it. I did the, my favorite one to do it is with the Danish girl mm-hmm. and watch it with as Alicia Vikander is mm-hmm. the star of the movie. Yeah. And, um, or her character. Um, and it changes the movie and I'm excited. Like, I feel like you could watch this from the German perspective. You could watch this from completely different perspectives and you're going to get it. You're going to get a a good story. Yeah. And I think that's always really exciting. Um, Yeah, no, I I agree. So we keep talking about this as a personal one and I'm going to touch on some of this, uh, but... This came from stories that Sam Mendes' grandfather told him. His grandfather was a writer named Alfred Mendes, uh, who was actually in World War One, and he said that his grandfather would tell him stories. And this this one is a particular story that his grandfather told him. And he said he said the movie came around a fragment of that story. So I don't know how much of it was actually the same story or not. I don't know if we'll ever know, uh, but I don't think we need to. No. Um, but, but yeah, so he, he's carried that with him since he was a child and finally made a movie about it. But I think that 
one problem, like you were kind of talking about with like personal stories, whenever you see directors who have pet projects, as much as I hate to admit it, the pet projects of most directors tend to suck. Yeah. Um, we have two dogs out here. Oh, I, I blocked off the upstairs. Yeah. So finish your thought. We're going to take a break. Yeah. Um, a good example is, uh, <laughs> to make kind of a deep cut, is Toys by Barry Levinson. You know, with Robin Williams in it? Yeah. Um, Barry Levinson made Rain Man. And, you know, Rain Man, best picture, best director, best screenplay, best actor. Like, it was a big movie of that year. Then he was like, good, I can finally make my passion project, which was apparently toys for some reason, that he's been trying to make since the 70s. Sure. And he finally did. Big spider, we need the big spider. (laughs) Yeah. He finally did, and the movie's awful. I agree. And then, like, I just had another one in my head of a director being like, well, I made these movies so that way I could make this one. Uh, Dennis Hopper is actually another good example. He did one called, he made Easy Rider, which was a huge success, and then he made one called The Last Movie, which apparently was so unsuccessful that it hasn't been screened in like 30 years, publicly. Um, And that's why he couldn't direct another movie for like 15 years. So I think Sam Mendes did a fantastic job of waiting till he was mature enough to tell this story and where he could look at it a little more objectively. He brought somebody in, I didn't catch her name, uh, to co-write the screenplay with him. Yeah. And I think that in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, possibly if he had been like, well, I made American Beauty, now I'm going to make 1917. I think this movie would have been four hours long. (laughs) I think that we would have gotten the whole post-Saving Private Ryan of like, war makers That's men what Jarhead. Do, do terrible things. That was what Jarhead was for. Well, Jar- Jarhead's an interesting one, though, because it's all about how bored you get doing nothing in war, you know? Yeah, but that's what I mean, though. Like, you yeah. get... And then he made really big, flashy action movies. Mm-hmm. So you get those out of your... You know, you learn the lessons that you learn from those. Yeah. Well, and that's something Thomas Newman talked about, too, in an interview. He's like, well, I'd never done an action movie before, uh, before Skyfall. He said, I'd done action sequences in Pixar movies, but I'd never done an action movie. So he was like, I grew muscles on the two James Bond movies, and I don't think I could have done this movie justice had I not done those. Right. Um, talking about the music in this movie. Well, we need to take a break. All right, let's take a break. Yeah, we've been, wow, we've been going for a while. We need to take a break. We'll be back. We'll talk about music. But I also want to talk about something that we actually talked about during the movie is about war itself and our grandmothers. Yes. Okay. All right, we'll be right back. Have you ever looked at all those Insta celebrities and been like, where do you get your raw jewelry because it's gorgeous? Or where did you get that female empowerment shirt because I need one? But then you think to yourself, I don't wanna go shopping because it's too selfish. What if I could tell you, you could get awesome apparel, awesome jewelry, and it gives back. You need to check out Rock's Jewelry Shop. That's right, Rock's, R-O-X. Rock's Jewelry Shop has amazing jewelry, and I just got a shirt that says, those females are strong as hell. Thank you, Kimmy Schmidt. You can check out Rock's Jewelry Shop online, and with code DATENIGHT, you'll get 15% off. So head on over to Rock's, R-O-X, Jewelry Shop.com, code DATENIGHT for 15% off. And we are back talking 1917, uh, which is a movie that I don't think either of us expected to like as much as we did. You know, I, like you said uh, earlier in the podcast, uh, like it's another war movie. And walking into this theater, we were objectively the youngest people there. Oh, yeah. Um, there, it was just to, to give you a, a theater experience. We 
went to a, a, a we went to a, a theater we really like. Um, the lady behind us predicted somebody's death at least five times. Yeah, it, um, and she had so many predictions during the movies, and it was always wrong. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that was enjoyable, and her whisper was at like a you know a high decibel, um, the, and whoever her partner who she was with. Um, he kept hawking up a loogie and uh, there was someone on oxygen, which I actually thought was part of the score at the very beginning. And I looked uh-huh. at Jordan and I was like, is that happening in real life? Cause it, it kind of happened in rhythm with the movie. Yeah. So <laughs> it was like, is that real or is it real or, and because it never, ever stopped. It was like, okay, someone's on oxygen. So I had this moment when we first sat down for the movie, I thought, I don't know if we're the right audience yeah. for this. Well, because... Because you ever, think war movie, you think... Yeah, you, you think it's people who have a fetish for supporting the troops. And I'm not saying that we don't support troops. I am saying that there are certain groups of people who fetishize it and don't care about what happens to the actual troops. Correct. Yeah. Do we want to jump into that conversation or music? Uh, let's talk music, because I think the other conversation is going to be... Uh, I don't think it's going to be a thing or lengthy. Um, I think it's going to be to the point, but that was kind of our theater experience. And, uh, this to say, I do think we, I think this was, I don't know who the target audience was for this, but I do know who most of the ticket sales are going to go to. Yeah. Um, but, um, I think with the history of war movies, we are getting further and further away from our veterans who came like, from World mm-hmm. War One and World War Two, yeah, um, that I think less and less young people are going to see these movies because I saw them because my grandfather was in World War Two. I yeah. saw them because my father was like, "You need to watch these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to watch Red Badge of Courage. You need to watch these war movies. This is the greatest generation." Blah blah blah. Which we'll get into more later. But it, it always it always baffles me when people are just like, "Yeah, the troops war. You know, you know, support support your troops. Let's watch Apocalypse Now." And you're like, "I think you missed the point <laughs> yeah. of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I think you missed the point." Um, but honestly, I feel like other than the the early black and white movies where they were really just retelling these stories, mm-hmm. which again, just and there is such validation in a retelling, right? Otherwise, how we would know? Well. So you could say that 1917 is kind of the modern version of that. But the difference is, is that like the Audie Murphy war movies were straight up propaganda. Oh, yeah. Um, this is a movie that was a retelling of something that I'm going to assume is largely true, uh, but done without propaganda. And that's propaganda either way. Because again, it's not like a, it's not a war is hell movie. Uh and it's not a, you know, it's not like Black Hawk Down, which I think is one of the most saccharine war movies that they've ever made. Uh, but but it does it with just like, here's the story, here's these characters that you're rooting for, here's what they had to go through. In that case, in that way, it's almost closer to like All Quiet on the Western Front. Oof, yeah. 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 And like, and, and any... You could argue that any sort of visual storytelling is propaganda and any, mm-hmm. cause we're all trying to give a point of view. We're all right. trying to, so that's not, I think that's, I think that's a, a, a rabbit hole. 
I think so too. If we went down that. Um, but let's talk about Thomas Newman's score because I know that you really, really want to. Yeah. So I was very excited. I mean, most of the time, whenever I see a Sam Mendes movie, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to hear what Thomas Newman does with this. Mm-hmm. And I I was just excited to see what he did in a war movie. I remember whenever Skyfall came out, it's like, oh, I'm, so, I'm excited to see how he does a James Bond movie. And he did a pretty traditional score for a James Bond movie. A couple places where it definitely sounded a lot like him, but for the most part, he kept really solid to the musical heritage of that. Um, but like, I will go see movies because it's like, oh, how does Thomas Newman approach this style of movie? Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm still I'm still waiting on Todd Field to get uh, Blood Meridian so I can hear how Thomas Newman would do a Western. Uh, I, I guess in the meantime, I just have to watch The Highwaymen because that's the closest I'm going to yeah. get. But also, but Thomas Newman is a great example of what's it like for this person who has a strong thesis on what their sound is mm-hmm. do this movie. Well, and so getting into this movie, it was like, what does Thomas Newman do in a war movie? Because, you know, typically when I think of a war movie film score, I think of Saving Private Ryan. Again, that's just the generation that we are, but that's all also a really strong and it, it lays out a lot of what a traditional sound of a war movie would be and i mean you got to admit you looking back on it it's like okay save in private ryan yeah. okay and every like you said a lot of people learned the wrong lessons from that movie mm-hmm. the movie's brilliant yeah and and i mean you know you how can Albeit you get long but how can you sit there and be like oh john williams doesn't know what he's doing i know right but uh so got really excited for that a lot of Thomas Newman's scores, he, he's always considered to be like a minimalist composer. Because even Which whenever. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, well, because, I mean, but there, a lot of people think of him as two sides. There's like the really quirky, like American beauty side. Which is just like, what... Oh, man, Six Feet Under? Yeah, yeah, the theme for Six Feet Under is a great example of that. Uh, He did a lot of stuff like like some of his Steven Soderbergh movies in the early 2000s, like Aaron Brockovich. but then, but then there's also the other side of him that does Shawshank and Little Women, the 94 version. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the James Bond movies and then his uh, Pixar movies that he does, uh, which all have like a lot of orchestra to it. But even when he uses orchestra, he very rarely is like, oh, here's a 70-piece orchestra the way that John Williams or James Horner would use it. Yeah. You know, a lot of it is like it's mostly strings and really interesting orchestrations and then maybe some horns to help fill it out. This, however, really ran the gamut of Thomas Newman's whole sound. Yeah. There was some fantastic solo piano pieces in there that sounded exactly like him. And he plays he's actually playing piano on most of his scores. So it sounds a lot like him just sitting at the piano. And then there were some like interesting like. I couldn't tell what kind of percussion he was using, but he has a group of musicians who comes in, who come into his studio, and that's how he records the basis of his score, and then he does the or- the actual orchestra later. That's typically the way that he does it. So he brings in a percussionist who, like on American Beauty, played a lot of tabla and like you know really quirky or what Western ears would consider quirky, you know, a lot of yeah. like like Eastern and Indian instruments and things like that. So there was. There wasn't a whole lot of like big like like Hans Zimmer percussion on this. A lot of the percussion was handled by like one or two drums that you could tell was just a guy playing it by hand. And then there was some atmosphere through like he uses a lot of prepared guitar, uh, which is essentially just like taking your guitar and putting a lot of treatments on it and then not playing like chords, but like, 
you know, oh, I'm going to have this razor blade buzz against the strings and let's see how we can process that and make it this thing. So a lot of atmosphere, a lot of solo piano. He had some great use of solo cello in a couple of very important scenes. Yeah. But then there was the big orchestral moments, which were just perfect, I thought. There's the scene where... It's the first chase scene through the uh, through the bombed out city mm-hmm. at night, and, and most other composers, myself included, my first thought would be, okay, let's score this like an action scene, but it almost sounded like Howard Shore meets Philip Glass. Mm-hmm. You know, like it had its repetitive moments in there, uh, but like everything was just it was a beautiful piece of music, and that's one thing he's been talking about a lot in interviews is Sam Mendes didn't want gloom on gloom. He was like, he knew that this movie could easily be too much. So how do I comment on that without feeling like this is happening in there? And uh, an interesting thing, uh, an interview started off with, his Thomas Newman's father, Alfred Newman, uh, is a legendary film composer. And it brought up a conversation that Alfred Hitchcock had with him for the movie Lifeboat. And whenever he, Hitchcock was talking to him about the score, he didn't want music. He's like, well, Alfred, where's the music? Where's the orchestra in this movie? And he's like, same place the camera is. Uh, so that was just an it's, an... it's interesting to think about that conversation in terms of what Thomas Newman and Sam Mendes are doing in this movie. Uh, I also found that the score led on a little bit it did yeah um for the for me it was the moment of when they spot the house the first house with the cherry blossoms Mm -hmm. um like the old farmhouse yeah and it is i mean the lady behind us was like the countryside is so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i wish i could have recorded her and been like here's here's the movie (laughs) we should have brought her on as a guest Um, which that's the movie we keep running into people that we have like weird conversations about. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, uh, so, oh, the music led on that something not so happy was going to happen Mm -hmm. in this place where it was surreally beautiful. Yeah. Um, or surreally, um, (laughs) surreally serene, serenely surreal. Yeah. It was gorgeous. And you don't get to the conclusion of why that's bad for a long time. Yeah. But the score leads you to believe they didn't want that this is going to be good, like, oh, this nothing's going to happen, and then something horrific's going to happen out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. They were like, no, no, this is a new beat to the story, yeah. which I found really interesting, and they did that in a few places. Well, and that's something that he's been talking about in interviews, too, is like, well, there are no camera cuts, so what stops the music and what starts it again? So I think... Story th- beats. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was a matter of, you know, a, a lot of times whenever a composer is asked to write a piece of music, it is like comment on what's happening now. Because you you have so many other things to think about. There's like, you know, okay, well, where are the edits coming in? Where are the Where's the ADR coming in here? Things like that. So you can't be the one to carry it. And of course, I wouldn't say that Thomas Newman is carrying this movie. I think, like you said earlier, every department is pulling equally its own weight and shining. Yeah. But in this case, it's like, okay, well, this is kind of where the story beat is going to be leading here. Maybe it's earlier than I would traditionally score this, but this is the way it needs to happen because otherwise it's just going to feel like music is going to pop in there. Uh, One thing I want to mention about the music at the end, and this kind of is talking about the filming as a whole. So the scene where he's running in the battlefield at the end. Yeah. 
which was just amazing. Uh, apparently the apparently the orchestral recording they recorded this at Abbey Road in London. Uh, that was the first take. Really? Yeah, yeah. That That's that cool. whole six minute cue that was the first take they used. That's cool. Um, which another thing in there. So you know how he's like bumping into the other soldiers and stuff. Not scripted. I mean, if you're just going to tell people to run... Well, this movie used up to 500 extras in places. Yeah. And, and like, there were parts in there where, like, you can I tell... I hope all of those were stunt people, though. Yeah. Uh, I, There's I was, some massive crashes in there. Yeah. But, um, you know, the like, he's running and the camera's, like, panning behind him. You can tell it's dollied or tracked or something like that. So I think it's on a 4x4. Four four. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. You No, because you, you can't have a dolly track. He couldn't have run... That's true. ...in the middle. But, uh... There are places where, like, where you can tell that, like, he's losing steam and, like, whenever he gets bumped, but the camera keeps going back. And so what that does, like, I I could tell, I could almost guarantee you that the storyboard for that scene was to stay on him the whole time. But whenever it gets, like, there are times where he ends up getting really far back there and all it does is show the chaos of what's happening. It Also, this, the, and again, I really don't, we've not, we're, I mean, this... We're not in spoiler territory, but again, if you listen to this podcast, you know this part is spoiler spoiler territory. Mm-hmm. But the especially when he wakes up and it's daylight, and you know the you know how risky everything has been and how imperative uh-huh. daylight was. Yeah, and it's daylight. Yeah, and you know that if if this character is Schofield, right? Yeah. Doesn't get to the end of this line. I, and this is uh, a little bit of a spoiler, but if he doesn't get to the end of this line, 1,600 men will die. Yeah, and whenever he comes up to that regiment in the woods and the and that one soldier singing Way, Wayfaring Stranger, uh, and just like seeing him go up against the tree, at first I would... Because it took a second for that to hit me because he had just come out of the water... And he was surrounded by the cherry blossoms. And I'm going to try and not spoil why the cherry blossoms are a big deal in that scene. But it was devastating. Um, yeah, which... Well, well tr- let's just breeze past that real quick. Okay. Um, but he gets to the woods and it's daylight. And then he just is against the tree and he looks drained. At first I was like, man, I'd be tired too. And then I was like... I thought he died. Well, I thought... I was like, oh my God. He failed. Yeah. I thought he died. Yeah. I thought he was dead against the tree. Mm-hmm. I thought it was D-E-D. <laughs> I did. I was like, oh, they're going to like, hey, man, and he's going to be dead. Yeah. And then we have to figure out the rest of it. I, that's what I thought. This. I was like, oh, I was my. Like, who's, who's main character number three now? And I was like, uh-oh. And then for them to go, no, we're D company. And it was like, uh, oh, oh, no. And that, oh, no. You can see him get that wind back in him. Uh. I mean, by this point, this poor person has a massive head injury, probably chest trauma, uh, has been running like for an entire day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got crushed at some one point, mm-hmm. like the amount of, and has not eaten, has not ate, ate a, uh, to flashback to the beginning of this episode, pieces of torn off old ass bread that's all he's had in 24 hours he had a little yes. bit of milk he had a handful of milk on his bloody hand mm-hmm. that he'd already got caught on barbed wire ow 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 um, ow 
let's talk about the cast in this movie. Yeah, let's let's I, let's let's streamline this because the cast is great. Yeah, uh, and a lot of um, sorry, I'm going away from the mic, and sorry everyone, my allergies this morning are killing me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I like recording in the morning. I do too. I, I feel like this is the most energy we've had in a while that wasn't us being angry at cats. <laughs> you, you were angry at cat. Hey, I was. I was amped after cat. Yeah, and I'll say again, the, by the end of 2019, one just being kind of like run thin and work. Mm-hmm. I was so over all of those movies. Yeah. I'm also mad at the Oscars because all the movies that I was like, that's a piece of garbage. You, you want to get angry for a second? 1917 has 10 Oscar nominations. Joker has 11. No. 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 I'm upset. I'm upset. I hate that movie. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) I hate that movie. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about the cast now is because I think it's going to be a pretty quick conversation about it. Yeah, George McKay is awesome. George McKay is fantastic. Dean Charles Chapman as uh, as Elsie Blake. Yeah, um, who kind of in spoiler territory. You think he's going to be the main character throughout this yeah. movie? So Lance Corporal, what does Lance Corporal mean? Uh, Are so, they like they're not privates? So I'm going based upon our, one of my best friends. Daniel was in the Marines, and I think he uh, he was discharged as a Lance Corporal. So I think it's like private, private first class, Lance Corporal, then Corporal. Okay, so not the bottom, bottom of right. the totem pole. That's kind of like you've seen some stuff, you've done some things, and you've done enough to where you are to where you are now seen as somewhat of an authority. Like Daniel had his own. I think he had his own squad. It, it was did. at least his own team. I can't. He did. It was a squad. Yeah. Yeah. So you are in a place where you could be in leadership, and so like for these two, because they were Lance Corporals, they were. They were able to be recognized, like whenever Colin Firth's general talks, and was like, "Oh, we know that you know maps." Like they've done, they've enough done enough to have some sort of recognition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they even say in there that uh, Schofield or Schofield, 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 uh, he even got a medal for something. Yeah, and he, they never really say what it is. No, oh, but I love it's just a piece of tin, but it's a piece of tin with a ribbon. Yeah, well, and that Dean Charles Chapman, he was great in this movie. Now you know where we've seen him before. Where he was Tom and Baratheon in Game of Thrones, the the youngest, the youngest of the what? yeah Baratheon children. Okay. Uh, yeah. So when I he, thought there's a comedic American actor that he looks exactly like, and so I kept getting kind of distracted. I kept trying to figure out who that was. I think that was supposed to be. It was originally offered to Tom Holland. Interesting. Yeah, which I think Tom Holland would have done really good. There. Yes, but Tom, I don't think Tom would. He would have been really great, mm-hmm. um, and it would have been nice to hear, like, get him. I I feel like. Yeah, Tom would have been great because he would have. He's really quirky. I feel mm-hmm. like he would have almost been playing himself. Yeah, I think so. Well, and I, but that's the thing is that I don't know anything about Dean Charles Chapman. Uh, I know you have worked with Tom Holland. Yeah, and you know, I, I obviously have never even been in the same building as him, unless he was also staying at the hotel. But no, he wasn't. I didn't think so. Uh, but I, like, I would have seen. I can see Tom Holland just knowing how, like, he kind of. And you'll see him on social media. He's kind of playing just an American version of himself whenever he does Spider-Man. Um, yeah, kind of. So I can see him doing that. And for this character, that would have actually been a really good fit. Yeah, I uh, think so. I, and he really, really cares about... 
I love, I, he's a joy to watch act mm-hmm. and like be in the process. So yeah, I think it would have been great. Um, I don't think that this movie would have been necessarily a better movie with Tom Holland in it. I don't think it, I think it would have still been amazing. I think, I think the performance would have been great, but I'm glad to see that it went to somebody who we didn't immediately recognize. Yeah, and George McKay as well. Yeah. Although, I told Jordan, George McKay, most of you either know us and you're listening to this, or if you're listening from um, for our friends all across the world, um, which, by the way, keep reaching out. We love hearing from you. Um, George McKay looks like one of my, co- like two of my cousins, mm-hmm. and they they both look identical, even yeah. though they're not twins or anything. I was like, but I the whole time, and I finally looked at Jordan towards the end of the movie, I was like, that's my cousin. Good Lord. So it was interesting to just like go through this whole thing. And they're, um, they're my cousins. So they're not like someone who looks directly like me. So I look nothing like George McKay. If Mm -hmm. you see me, if you go to my Instagram, I don't look anything, but it was surreal to watch this whole movie and see the jawline like that. That's Abram. That's Abram. Yeah. That like, Holy and Nathan. I mean, they both look the same, but I was like, I know that jawline. Mm-hmm. I know that jawline. It was so crazy. To, anyway, but he was amazing. What What would we know uh, George McKay from? George McKay has been in less than, or like not as many things that Americans would have uh, would have recognized. He was in that movie Defiance, which had Daniel Craig uh, and is like the four brothers who were. Uh, who were protecting Jews in Poland during World War II. He mm-hmm. was the youngest brother, so he would have been like 14, 15 then. Uh, I'm trying to see here. Uh, he was in Peter Pan from 2003. He was one of the Lost Boys. Okay. Uh, which, of course... So he's a, young, he's a young actor. Yeah, he's been doing it for a while. He was in Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen. Oh, oh wow. Okay, yeah. I heard great things about that movie. Uh-huh. He played Hamlet in Ophelia... Oh okay. Uh, so see. some acting chops. Yeah, I mean he's he's he has done a lot. It's just not as, a, not as many things that mo- that a widespread American audience would know him for. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, what I liked how this movie did is it had a lot of name actors in it and a lot of name British actors. But just with the way that the movie and the story was told in itself, it's not like you spend a lot of time with them. And so it's like. It, it was not because you spent so much time with people who you didn't recognize and you, you know, you, you were with their characters there. When Mark Strong comes up on screen, you're like, oh, cool, Mark Strong. And then you're like, oh, wow, he actually does play a really great hero, doesn't he? Right. Colin Firth. How fun. And, he is grumpy. <laughs> and, and then you, then you, they leave and it's just like, oh, that's the last we're going to see of Colin Firth. Same with Andrew Scott, who played Moriarty on uh, Sherlock, and he's also the hot priest in Fleabag. Mm-hmm. Um, then we also have... Which, there's a really great, uh, if you listen to, there's an American podcast um, called Throwing Shade, and they have a whole thing about him being shirtless. So yeah. you're welcome in advance. Yeah. Um, then uh, we have, yes, yeah, so there was Mark Strong after that. Uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, the Rich- brother. Yeah, Richard Madden. Yes. Uh, apparently that was also the first take. Get out of here. Yeah. But you know what, though? It's kind of the Clint Eastwood thing. There's something to be said about a first take. Yeah. Um, and clearly there's a lot of homework done. Well, so they they rehearsed this movie for six months before they started filming. Well, yeah, you have to. Yeah, but here's the thing. They filmed this movie in like a month. Thomas Newman was hired on in March of 2019, and Ooh. he started working with Picture in May of 2019. 
Ooh. Now, that's not to say that it was like a final edit there or anything like that. No. Uh, because there was there were a lot of fantastic edits in this movie. Uh, there's only one cut in this movie that you think, oh, that's not a seamless cut. And that's because it's designed to be that way. Yeah. I mean, the blind edits in this. Oh. <clears throat> so... Yeah, and that's something we mentioned to Alfred Hitchcock earlier. That's something that he kind of pioneered. There's a movie that he made back in the, I think it was late 40s, called Rope. And that's all designed to be take be like one take. Uh, but they do the thing where they have the camera pass through immovable objects. And, they f- and that's how they end the cut. And then they start the cut passing it through again. So that way they can find the perfect edit point. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but... You know, and that's how Birdman works. That's how this one works. Uh, most movies that are done in like one take, uh, Children of Men, that had those really long, like 10, 15 minute long takes, that's how they would do those as well. Yeah. And and also, also I don't want to discredit that uh, there's also that ep- that fight scene in Daredevil mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, uh, oh, Old Boy? Old Boy. Yeah. The, I don't want to discredit that there are. L- long takes in these yeah i mean like don't i don't want to discredit that we're talking about that there are edits when they're like this is a movie done in a take that's no that's no that's impossible and what i like about this is that they're all the filmmakers behind this are being very honest that no there are lots of edits in this movie lee smith the editor Mm -hmm. um who also worked a lot with christopher nolan uh i think he won an oscar for like either i think inception but uh but yeah like you know, he had a lot of work to do here. We did a, we did a war movie that was basically done in four takes, and it was a short film. It was like seven minutes and long. And we did it in we did it in four long series. Yeah, we but we didn't do we didn't we didn't really because we had to film it so fast. We didn't have the option to do like invisible edits or anything. It was just you know all right, let's get four but great takes in here. We had four great takes, four long edits, and that I mean was really really hard yeah and so i can't imagine how hard this movie was to do i can't i can't fathom because i would imagine they're doing at least like eight minute takes at a time oh it was it was most movies are done with 20 second takes at a time edited together yeah i mean yes and no yeah um oddly enough m night Shyamalan does a lot of takes where it looks like a piece of theater Mm -hmm. he just like lets the space exists. Yeah. Um, not to glorify him too much. Um, well, but he has the ability to be a great filmmaker. Yes. And he just keeps <laughs> in and out. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to point out, because I really do want to talk about something else, um, is how good this movie is. The fact that we are able, t- we don't have to sit here and talk about er- like the mo- moments that failed us as an audience. And mm-hmm. we're, and it's made us think about 10,000 other things. Yeah. And I think any good art, um, for example, I was at the Cleveland, Cleveland Modern Museum of Art uh, when I was out there working um, on a day off, and an unexpected day off, so I went there. And there's um, uh, there's a, an exhibit there that's there right now, so who knows if you'll get to see it. But if you ever get the opportunity to see Byron Kim's The Sunday Series, and it's something that was on the surface extremely simple, but it had a really good thesis and... I mean, it has literally, like, so many things and projects that I'm on are really exemplified by what this artist achieved. And on the on the surface, it seems so simple. So on the surface, this just seems like a movie that someone needs to go from point A to point B, and there's war, and, like, anytime you have really high stakes, right, a lot of work is done for you. Mm-hmm. Like, 
If you're like, oh, it's a war movie, you're like, well, she's then there's dead bodies everywhere and we need to act the stench and the pain and you're dirty and you're miserable. Like we do that. The scenario and the stakes itself sets a lot of work for you. Mm -hmm. And we could think, oh, this movie is just this. But on the surface, it seems so simple. And really, it is so well achieved that we could talk about a million different things. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's, I really just think it's a triumph. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to sit here and talk about, as as interesting and weird and odd as this seems, it's hard to keep talking about a movie that you loved so much. Because after a while, your body gets exhausted from praising it. But, like, that's really how I feel about this movie. I had mentioned the two things that I wasn't crazy about this movie. That one VFX shot and uh, the title. Other than that, I cannot believe how amazing of a movie this was. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I and and like I said earlier, I think it's a fantastic companion piece to Dunkirk. Uh, it's definitely more horrific than Dunkirk, but at the same time, it's not as well. It doesn't revel in it, which you've already you, talked about. Yeah, but Dunkirk doesn't either. But Dunkirk no. is a relentless movie. Uh, Dunkirk, I I totally agree. Like. You, there's no respite, and and that's the story that they that they needed to tell for that movie. So like, I, none of this is a criticism on Dunkirk. I think that these are two sides of the same coin. Uh, one thing a lo- I heard a lot going into this movie is that you know, oh well, you know, it's just kind of Sam Mendes doing Christopher Nolan right now. And I heard people say that the score was similar, that the that the movies felt similar. These movies could not feel any more different. The score could not be any more different, but they both do their jobs in perfect ways. Right. And they are both more movies. Yeah. And yeah. they both follow they both follow uh, you know, actors who you're not very familiar with, uh, playing low playing lower level soldiers who are just after to do one thing but i don't care i like i think dunkirk is an almost perfect movie i think this is an almost perfect movie i would say that this movie probably excites me more than dunkirk did like to go back and watch it again but yeah but i think that I think that both of them achieved what they wanted to achieve perfectly. I think that this is a that nineteen seventeen is a triumph of film. I feel the same way about this that I did Gravity, and I will say that I like nineteen seventeen a lot more than I like Gravity as a movie. But when we left Gravity, I was like, "This is the pinnacle of of modern filmmaking. This is what people a hundred years ago were dreaming to achieve." Yeah, and some I somebody had said like on Facebook like is Gravity really that good? Yes. I'm just like yes, it is. As of today, this is the high point of filmmaking in the history of filmmaking. It might not be that tomorrow, but right now it is, and I stand by it. In 2013, Gravity was the high point of filmmaking. To me, I feel the same way about this movie. This movie changed the. I think that if. If movies after after 1917, if war movies take more cues from this, then this movie kind of does for war movies the way that Saving Private Ryan did. Um, I think that it, it shows that you can still make as gripping and as emotional and as tense of a war movie as you want to make and keep it under two hours and keep it keep it not just reveling in the fact that war is hell. Like you said, we get that. Yeah. And that's, I just want to make this transition and we're keeping you long today. Um, we both have family members that were in 
very big wars. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing that we literally started talking about in the movie is it was very early on and they're just like in the mud. Yeah. And they were like, be careful of the craters because those will kill you in and of themselves. Yeah. They're, they're deeper than you think. If you fall in, you're not getting back out. Right. And we both were just like, and this, again, it was really early on in the movie before the movie had proven that it's not going to just be a war movie. Yeah. Right. We're going to watch them and like, and like supporting the troops, which here in America is such a, it's been weaponized. It's been weaponized. And, and Jordan and I were both talking about like supporting the troops is troops is bringing them home. And we talk about these generations being the greatest generations. And one thing, so what made me think of it, there's a moment that Schofield gets his hand cut in barbed wire, mm-hmm. which is, ha, can't fathom. Yeah. Like it got stuck in the middle of his palm. How much that hurt. He pulled it out. It's not designed to come out. Right. I would like to remind everyone it is not designed to do that. And then they go down uh, a little bit of a trench, not one of the big craters. By the way, they dug literally a mile of trenches for this movie. That sounds miserable to me. Yeah. Holy crap. Which they had to. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this movie was impossible. Um, and then his buddy bumps into him and his hand goes into a dead body. Mm-hmm. And it is the same hand. Yeah. I swear, like if, there's an ep- like, if there's an epilogue for this movie, and it would be like, and he lost his left hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but he li- his injured hand literally goes into the cavity of a soldier. Right, because it's he's been dead long enough. Mm-hmm. Slash, that's kind of a hole already. Yeah, and I thought, and he, and all he does is just grimace and go, oh, ah, 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 and go. Mm-hmm. And you see Schofield go through so many of these moments, and I just thought to myself, we are all given the opportunities that we are given and we have to rise to the occasion. And Jordan, you said something that really stuck out to me is like, they didn't want to be there. Right. And like, and you can get that even from reading any cursory, like world war two book. The one that I remember was band of brothers, which I read because of the miniseries. And of course, then you find out that Stephen A. Ambrose was a, was a world-class plagiarizer. Yeah. But I remember there's something that stuck out in there. It's like, these guys didn't want to be shooting M1s. They wanted to be home shooting their twenty two rifles. And going to work. Yeah. And they had to rise to the occasion. It... But like the whole, the culture of support the troops. And again, I want to make it very clear that Jessica and I support soldiers. Um, We want them home. Yeah. We want them with their families. And, and when they and when they say yes to the call, and I would like to then I would also like to say because I've been heavily criticized for this, this has been told to my face that I don't matter because I didn't join the military, mm-hmm. um, as well as other things as a woman, and um, I said I wanted to be in an I wanted to be in the Air Force and fly FA 18s. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah, but I am to this day an asthmatic, and they won't let me fly FA 18s. Yeah. Even though I have a severe problem with authority and I probably would have had a rocky career. <laughs> Just a little bit. As someone in the military. But that's what I wanted to do. So, and Jordan and I, again, we support our troops. So please don't infer this. But it's just a storytelling on propaganda about being at war. Yeah. And especially as we're recording this, it is very likely mm-hmm. that we just continue our war with the Middle East. Well, the thing is, one thing that I realize is that really... American troops haven't been sent to a war that I think was 
for lack of a better term, justified in 50 years. World War One and World War Two were awful, but like they were, it's like, okay, I guess we need to get involved. And those were people, Kurt Vonnegut talked about it whenever he was talking about being so adamantly against the invasion of Iraq uh, back in the 2000s, as he said, I'm a veteran of a war that was justified and that we needed to fight. I didn't want to do it, but we did it because that's what had to be done. Uh, I'm paraphrasing that. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, but like, you, whenever people talk about the greatest generation, and I'm not saying anything about, like, our grandfather's generation, but, like, it wasn't the fact that they were better. It's the fact that they were, like you said, they were playing the card that they were dealt. And unfortunately, soldiers now have just become currency. And if you say that you support the troops, then that should make you furious. If they do have to answer the call, I want it to be something that is worth them answering the call for. And if it's not, then I don't want them to be used to gain political points. No, and we talk, We both have grandfathers that were in World War II who never talked about it. Mm-hmm. Never, ever, ever talked about it. No matter how much you wanted to know my I did and then my other grandfather um I actually had two grandfathers in World War II mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had three grandfathers yeah. so um and like men who were actually deserved the title and uh two of them were war, in World War II my other one died so early but he never talked about it because my mom never shares anything about it mm-hmm. and then um a grandfather in Korea I know a lot about the Korean conflict. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was the one who told me, because I did a project on it, because I wanted to interview him. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, it's the Korean conflict. We lost. Mm-hmm. That's the first time I heard that. Yeah. Not my history book. He was like, well, no, we didn't win. Yeah. We didn't win. And he was an engineer. Um, so he's got a lot of base stories. He was in the Air Force. Um, he went over there. And I know a lot of stories about Korea. People died. It was horrific. But I can't imagine the horrors of World War II that we have family that would not speak of it. And I think that I was really wary to go see a World War I movie because it's like, what happened here? Like, history is told in the eyes of the victors. So, you know, I'm sure there's a lot that we still don't know. Mm -hmm. And we are we are witnessing a story that came from the eventual victors. Although that, although in 1917 we were, you know, the, the Brits were not winning. Yeah. Um, no, like the Germans were winning. Um, so it was fascinating to me because I got very wary because I didn't necessarily just want to watch this movie that we glorify something that was just awful. And we have a lot of stories on it, and so I really appreciate the care that was taken mm-hmm. um, to not make it such a thing. Because I'm really concerned about just this this war propaganda and like for people to watch this and it and if it influences someone to go into the military and serve, you know, I hope that's genuinely on your heart. But also on the flip side, I hope it all reminds us of why we really don't want to go to war. Right. Yeah, I definitely don't think that this is a movie like I mentioned Black Hawk Down earlier. Uh, that was apparently in the pre-production process supposed to be a movie that was supposed to be a lot more balanced and objective. And then whenever it came out, that was basically that was basically uh, an army promotional video. Yeah. Uh, and that was right after September 11th. Yeah. So that makes total sense culturally. But I was glad that this didn't seem like propaganda one way or the other. 
that this was just a movie that told a story and told it unflinchingly. Yeah. Um, it did it in a way that you can enjoy it. You know, most World War II, like a lot of World War II movies that came out post Saving Private Ryan, it's hard to actually watch them and enjoy them. It uh, felt like a long history lesson. Yeah. This this is one that is doesn't forget that it's a film. Yeah. And it's a film about people. And it's a film that shows the consequences. There is a scene in this movie where he's where he's with the woman and the baby. Yeah. It is one of the most poignant scenes I think I've ever seen in a film. And you don't find out the full meaning of that scene until the very end of the movie. But in that scene, I knew the history of that character. Oh, undoubtedly. And it was so well performed. It was so well put together. Uh, just everything about it. That that might be one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I can't say enough good things about this movie. Would you recommend people see it? Uh, you know, I think they should. I think so too. As uh, Y'all, it is... It is a, it's obtainable to go see it. And then, and I mean that in time, mm-hmm. like they, they get to the point for the love of all movie making. <laughs> yeah. I think we've officially decided we're not going to do an episode on the Irishman because Jessica just doesn't want to sit through a three and a half hour long movie. I mean, I, you know, there's a time and a place. Um, I'm currently having a hard time with old white men movies. I just saw one. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it. Um, so, uh, but we, I did and I loved it and it renewed my faith and I'm in, uh, my own little pre-production for a short and it's making me go, making me look at it a little harder, mm-hmm. um, which is good. And so I feel like this movie did what it needed to do and I'm just so thrilled to have seen something that was so good. Yeah. I, I can't recommend you see this movie enough. Um, again, it's not a gory movie. There's, it, there are gore. Th- there there is, is gore. Yeah, but it's not like, again, to go back to the Saving Private Ryan, I think, I think that that is such a touchstone in cinema that it's hard not to compare any war movie I to mean, that. I mean, the whole movie start, opens up on D-Day. Yeah, but like D-Day is a gory scene. There's, oh. no, there's nothing as gory as the Saving Private Ryan D-Day scene in 1917. And the moments that, are, that get close are uh, actually really quick, and it doesn't revel on it. Uh, it's nothing like I always think of in Tropic Thunder when they're actually filming the movie in the beginning and they stab Jay Baruchel with the with the uh, bayonet and then they just keep like stirring it in the stomach. There's nothing like that, you know. <laughs> Which might be my favorite war movie, but I know. <laughs> but but yeah, this movie it's one. I honestly think I can. I'm a little less objective right now than I will be in a year. But of course. as of today. I think it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Wow. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I have to, I would have to think a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because I feel like I have different movies that are the best movie I've ever seen for when I, when I need them. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, but technically, um, just technically speaking, I don't know how they did some of this. It is such a feat. And Roger Deakins to be, I think dude's like in his late 60s or 70s right now. And for him to be a camera operator and for him to be doing all the stuff that he was doing. And the steady cam op whose name I saw in the credits, but then I quickly forgot. So sorry. Yeah, man. But that steady cam op, I don't know how they were doing. I'm, I, I literally 
I don't know how they did some of this and I can't wait to learn how they did. Yeah. I, I think that this is one that we need to, we say that we never ended up buying Captain Marvel. And of course now we have Disney plus. So like, we're not going to buy that one. <laughs> even, even though we said that, yeah, I want to own this one, but I think 1917 is one that I want to own and I will actually go watch the special features on it, which I don't usually do for movies because I am craving to know how this movie was made. And honestly, I know I've said this in a few movies. Uh, Doctor Sleep, I've said it on. Um, there's another one recently that we saw, but I cannot... Knives Out. I cannot wait to see this movie again. Yeah. You know, I feel so strongly about this movie, and I want to experience it again. Yeah, I agree. I think we've talked everybody's ears off. I think so, too, but we. I think we did a positive spiral this time. I think so. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of 1917, and... And we'll see you next time.